0: Welcome to the Amplifier Event Marketing Podcast, your chance to listen in on a no-holds-barred conversation about marketing events and venues from the best in the business. Now here's your host, Kendra Wright. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to The Amplifier. Today, I'm coming to you from the International Association of Fairs and Events Convention in Las Vegas, Nevada. But I must take a moment and say that I'm not just at the convention. I am actually in an igloo. Jerry, have you been in an igloo before?
1: Well, Yes, I grew up in Minnesota, and actually, <laughs> that's we all live in igloos in, uh, in St. Paul. So, yes, I feel right at home.
0: Well, now, I know you're not saying that's just because I'm from Texas and, you know, you can totally play with us Texans and we'll believe anything, right? Um, anyway, I am so happy today to be joined by Jerry Hammer, the general manager of the Minnesota State Fair. I have uh, watched your fair, obviously, for a long time, so it's really a pleasure to be, to be with, speaking with you today.
1: Well, thanks very much. It's, uh, this is, this is really pretty cool, Kendra. I'm really, really glad for the invitation.
0: Well, we're so newfangled with our technology here with the podcasting and so forth, but I think it's really a good service to people. They're not all going to get to talk to you, Jerry, in person. So this way they'll get to talk to you, uh, by listening on the podcast. Anyway, before we start, I just want to mention that my company is Sapphire Events and we help events, venues, and destinations shine online. But today I am not talking about Sapphire. I'm talking about ideas to help you un- ignite your own marketing and, and, um, Operations for your event, venue, or destination, and as I mentioned, I'm here with Jerry Hammer. I'm so happy to speak with him today. I know his event is just you know pretty small. I'm hoping we can help you. It's one, about 1.8 million attendees, um, and um, anyway, we'll talk more about uh, your size in a second. But I happen to know just a little bit about you and how you got in your in the industry and with the fair. But will you tell our listeners how did you get started in this industry and what did you do before this?
1: Well, it's uh. It, one of the, the great benefits of working with fairs is that you meet some wonderful people from from literally all over the world, and, and a lot of people found their way into fairs by, uh, you know, they've done other careers somewhere else and and then found uh, that they really wanted to be involved with something great like fairs, that do as much as fairs do, that are so important in their communities, all these wonderful things. and. Uh, and in my case, I met the state fair because it was close to home. I grew up about a half a block away uh, from the state fair grounds. I went to work there uh, summers when I was a high school kid in the greenhouse. Uh, it's a it's big fairgrounds, over 300 acres, and uh, beautiful. Uh, it looks better now than it did then, but it looked good then too. And uh, part of the operation is the greenhouse. And it was a perfect job when you're a kid. It's 40 hours a week. Uh, no nights or weekends all summer long it was fantastic so I did that all through high school and college uh, and I uh, went to uh, the College of St. Thomas in, uh, in St. Paul and majored in journalism. I spent about 10 months at a daily newspaper about an hour south of the Twin Cities but always knew I was headed back to the fair and uh, starting in uh, 1977 I uh, joined the fair staff full-time and did non-fair events for a year then I did Uh, marketing and publicity and that changed a lot. I did that for 18 years starting with you know basically writing news releases for newspapers to but by by the time I I was by the time I uh, finished in that department you know we had a we had a website and we we were doing sponsorships and lots of different types of marketing but then for the last 18 years I've been uh, the GM of the state fair.
0: Oh that's great. So you know we didn't talk about this ahead of time but do you know what the attendance was when you started at the fair? Do you have any idea?
1: it was about 1.1 million people but again that's a long time ago too you know that's uh 1970 is is pretty ancient especially if you ask my kids
0: (laughs) all right so i know that you've just had your largest attendance ever this last year is that correct all right and uh tell me what do you attribute that how did you what do you attribute that record to
1: well if you uh this is oversimplifying i think but if you follow if you if you follow the population graph uh, for the state, uh, it it corresponds pretty closely with with the fair. Now, with, with a, a you know attendance is something that we all that we all use, but I think we put way too much emphasis on it. Uh, all we count are our tickets. We don't count everybody that goes to the fair anyway. All, all we're really interested in is, is the tickets. So those numbers that you see. Uh, they're, they're, they don't represent the total. We actually, you know, there's actually a, a, who knows, not, there's about a you know, there's another 100, 150,000 that actually attend that we don't report because they're you know like free kids uh, that get in and state fair employees and that kind of thing. Uh, but over time, uh, if, if you look at other events, uh, some fairs, uh, but but events in general, uh, those those events that, that don't stay relevant and stay current and adapt with the times uh will will hit skids. There's no guarantee that, that the fair is gonna to continue to draw as it does. Uh, our, our attendance is equivalent to about forty percent of the population of the of the state, which is a which is a real which is a really big number. And and, and the fact that we've been able to, to maintain that that level over all this time. Is, is something that we work really really hard at and really hard for because you, you know you, you have to it's uh, um, it, it's a combination over time of, uh, of of doing the things we do of adapting of changing of continuing to bri- hopefully provide people with what they're looking for
0: And so, okay, I know that every fair that's listening is thinking, oh gosh, this is the name of the game, staying fresh, staying relevant. Can you point to any time over the last, you know, 30 years or or more that um, you feel like was a turning point as far as attendance or anything you did where you felt like, wow, now we're on a roll or has it really been incremental? I
1: don't know that there's any one thing, but it's been it's been gradual and and uh, and it's it's very tangible, it's very real. I know when I started at the fair, and when I was a kid at the fair, you bought a ticket to get in, and then basically you needed to buy a ticket to do almost everything else. Mm -hmm. It was it was like shopping to get like like paying to get into a shopping center. You know, the egg component was certainly there, but really nothing else was, and that's changed. Dramatically. Right now you can you can spend a lot if you want. It depends on what you're doing. You can buy a car at the fair if you want, or you can spend absolutely nothing and be and be thoroughly entertained and learn a lot in the process. You know, e- education is a big part of what all of us do. It's a huge part of what we do and it's not just ag, it goes way beyond that. You know, if we're really doing if we're really doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, ultimately this sounds heavy but it's there's a lot of truth in it we are inspiring people to improve their lives in some way maybe they find something at the fair that uh, they take up a new hobby or learn or learn how to do something a little better or or, or, uh, or find a school, you know find a university. Uh, uh, there are people at the fair. I, I have very good friends in Minnesota County Fairs There's two different couples I know that as a result of their visit to the state fair, they, they adopted kids. you know they, they learned something while they were at the fair. Uh, so at somehow at some level, uh, if, if we're helping people to do that, then then we're, we're doing a lot and we're doing it right. And that means you have to change. You know, if you want your past perfectly preserved, then uh, that shouldn't be something that, that you find it a fair. But it is a balancing act, too, at the same time. You know, you don't go in and throw everything up in the air and change for change's sake. Uh, I had a very good fortune in, in June of traveling to England to see some of the ag shows there. And they are very, very locked in tra- into tradition. And there are traditional aspects of, of fairs that that, that that we should continue with. But at the same time, you've also got to change. And, and maybe, uh, and this is what we've learned over time, mm-hmm. as the fair has changed, that to take on all these character that it didn't have you know, 30 years ago, that, that uh, as we change, we offer Uh, people even a a broader view of the world the world is shrinking fast we all know that technology has done quite a bit and it's far easier to travel now and see things and we have to bring all those elements into the fair as well along with the, they ought to be all reflected somehow in those traditional components Mm -hmm. that that people enjoy so much about fairs.
0: Yeah. And I mean, speaking for myself, I have a five-year-old and taking him to the fair and giving him those memories. I mean, you spoke so eloquently about all the benefits of the fair, but if I was to break it down for myself, and I know everybody has a different reason, it's giving him those great memories and the tractor pull and the cutest show on earth and all the awesome things that he gets to do at the fair. Of course, he thinks it's normal to go to the fair every weekend. He thinks that's, I'm like, honey, this is not life. Just FYI you're super lucky and don't forget it anyway, what about I know you've done a lot of capital improvements Where do those lie on the heartburn scale and where do they lie on the benefit to the fair scale in terms of you know revenue or how do you feel about those?
1: We have uh, literally in historic fairgrounds there are several buildings that are over a hundred years old, major exhibit buildings that's you know if you're in other parts of the world that's nothing. Uh, but but in the states, particularly when you get in the Midwest, there aren't many structures that old. So uh, they they are still able to serve the purpose that we have, uh, for the most part. You know, with minor retrofit, being that they're old, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of work. And in our case, we're very fortunate uh, that we don't need any kind of. Uh, public aid at all, or any sort of subsidy, we're able to do these things ourselves. Uh, In the last uh, 18 years, we've invested about $130 in capital work and improvements to the grounds, a lot of it is preserving those old structures, and and one of them, uh, our grandstand, it was built in 1909. Dan Patch was the rock star pacer horse at that time, and it was built for horse racing, so that presents challenges with what we use it for today. But uh, it was built in about six months using construction methods that I don't know anybody if anybody would understand them now mm-hmm. uh, And we renovated that uh, 2002 2003 over two years at uh, at a cost that particular project alone was about 17 million but I, I can't imagine the fair without the grandstand that is literally our cathedral okay. uh, and it's changed over the years it started as horse racing then it was auto racing and uh, now it's stage shows and concerts so the, while the structure is there the, the the use the purpose has changed completely and and, and we've uh, made those improvements for it but you know most of the place was built uh, and all of the infrastructure the things you don't see was all built uh, W WPA days, the majority of it was WPA days, but they were there were some very smart people back then. They, they uh, put all the utilities, all the electricity, everything is underground, so, uh, so we have a very, very permanent uh, facility, lots of parks, lots of greenery, uh, beautiful architecturally significant old buildings. Uh, but it also means we got to stay on top of it. We got to work really hard to take care of it and make sure that it's, that it's in good shape.
0: Okay, so I know that you probably like any um, great fair manager go to other fairs and you get ideas. And I am and I know we all steal ideas. That's the greatest part of our industry that we're all geographically disparate so we can um, steal ideas what do you think people steal from you and what do you encourage them to steal from you is there any i know a lot of fairs have similar elements but i know you have some things we talked about the grandstand what else do you feel like is special and unique that you feel like drives your continued growth and um prosperity and you know uh being such a solid event that you think you would encourage others to steal well
1: i uh, i i think what i've heard most from people that have been to the fair uh, what what they take away is the is the emphasis we put on on just the overall environment and the landscape uh, with permanent buildings which which is unusual for a lot of fairs you know and, and certainly for the shows that, that uh, we saw in england where it's almost all temporary with permanent buildings and then you're allowed to do more permanent types of things to landscape and mm-hmm. you know every time you go a block or so you feel like you're in a different neighborhood and 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 that's that's just just part of the part of the architecture part of the history but uh what what i hear most from people that they take away is the landscape. Is the green is the trees, and I gotta tell you, when I see this is this is a personal deal with me, but it is with our staff as well. When you see those concessions, with the high as the sky signs, they're they're. I've seen them a lot of places Mm -hmm. now. They're they're twenty feet high with these mammoth signs on top, and if you look real careful, you can see a little window underneath, with what they're selling. Uh, We don't do those. We don't do those at all. We we have we have a beautiful environment, and, and I, I see absolutely no reason whatsoever to blot all that out. You know, if you, when when you've blotted out the sun, uh, when you can't see the sky because these concession stands are so tall. Uh, we'd lose an awful lot so we, we, we keep everything of a, of a smaller size so you can see that. But
0: That's you know, so cool. Yeah, yeah
1: well it's it's but it's it's trees it's grass it's sidewalks mm-hmm. it's park areas it's a lot of public space basically.
0: It's so funny because I think that everything you're talking about is really what they use in city planning to make cities look good you know we limit the size of the signs and you know t- certain types of materials and all that kind of stuff and I guess when you have a fairgrounds as big as you do it's almost like a city it's like you have to have those kinds of standards and I want to talk to you a little bit more about those standards, because you mentioned um, you know, the sense of discovery that you want people to have when they're walking through the fair, and you have various uh, neighborhoods. Wait a second. I want to talk about the neighborhoods, but real quick, the thing about the landscape, when I interviewed Errol McCoy from State Fair of Texas, he mentioned he felt like the landscape actually helped his security, because he said it, fe- felt, it felt safer to be pretty. It just didn't feel as... Um, you know, crime-ridden or, you know, whatever. It just felt safer. And so I thought that was another interesting thing about a great landscape, something that you don't even think about. If it's beautiful, maybe people take care of it more and they take care of themselves and each other. And, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. But let's talk about the, uh, the neighborhoods. How do you, what how do you create those neighborhoods? And like, if I was a fair, maybe even a smaller fair, how do you create a sense of discovery in your fair through the, let's call it the neighborhood concept?
1: a lot of it's already there you know these these structures uh, like the, the newer exhibit buildings we have for the most part are from the 60s a lot of them go back to the 40s in the WPA days and 30s and even older so they've been there they you know they predate us and I like I said earlier there were some really smart people that came ahead of us and and that's something to look at as well before I get to the neighborhood deal but but if you if we look at the, the the long history of the fair and in our case, the institution that, that is responsible for the State Fair, it's actually older than the state. It was founded in 1854. And Minnesota wasn't even a state till 1858, uh, but it's the same institution. You know, it goes back that long. So they, they did just fine for a really long time, and, and in that long timeline, we're only here. You know, I've been in this job for a long time, and I've got, I don't know, 30-some years, 40 years, uh with with part time at the fair, but in the, in the long history of the fair, that's still not a very not, not very long at all. Uh, now, we didn't pick to be here now. You can't choose your time. What you can choose though is what you do with the time you have. So that's what's been really important for us is that we is that we uh, is that we, we build a facility, we maintain a facility, we create new space where we can and, and make sure that it's as welcoming. And, and, and it feels as good as it does, it, not just for now. You know, they, what's the line about your trees? You don't plant a tree for you, you plant it for your kids and your grandkids. That's been our approach to the work we've done to the fairgrounds. It's not enough to get by, was, we wanna do it right. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd really hate, I I'd, I'd think we'd fail to 50 years from now, you know, whoever is in charge is saying, what the hell were they thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, why did they do this over here? Why did they, you know, I, I really don't want them to say that. but. Uh, So the the idea uh, for us is is to to keep the space that works really well, to keep that uh, that way. And in other cases we've replaced facilities that were supposed to be temporary and then you know in typical fair fashion, and this is true of every fair out there, 40 years later you're still using the same temporary facility. That when we have replaced those, that we've improved them greatly, that we've built them to last, that, uh, and again we're in a fortunate position that we can do this. You know, don't use blacktop; use concrete, uh, just make, make sure that it's there, make sure that it's done right. Uh, but this year, with a whole neighborhood idea in mind, for this past fair, we did create some brand new space. It, it replaced an old temporary facility built as a teen fair back in 1964. In uh, the mid-70s, it, uh, the function changed. It was, no longer the, you know, it was no longer, you know, Beatles stuff and, and rock bands. Uh, if you're old enough, you remember the bicentennial in uh, 1976 when the U.S. celebrated 200th anniversary. Uh, It became Heritage Square, which is an early American-themed area, and it stayed Heritage Square up until uh, 2013, when we finally got rid of it. Now we've got an opportunity here to do something new, and there was it, it was never our intent to replace it. It was to create a whole new neighborhood, uh, which we did, and it was beautiful. It's uh, it's uh, it, it was a huge hit. Uh, the architect critics were all there. Uh, we created new space basically for commercial exhibits. We built a new State Fair History Museum that we worked with uh, Minnesota State Historical Society on. Uh, they're the people. They, they know how to do it. You know, if it was left to us, you, we'd hang pictures on the wall and put in, put in a few display cases. Uh, they took it just to this whole new incredible level, and where we continue to update it and keep it working. It's a beautiful building, and it, and it works really, really well. Uh, along with the commercial exhibits, the museum. There's also restrooms. There's major new concessions and. Uh, uh, again, we're very lucky. We have uh, we had two two major restaurant operators from the Twin Cities. Each of them spent about uh, actually as close to two million each on their on their concession structures. So you know you, you walk into this new area, uh, and uh, and and again, really get a feeling you're someplace special. You know there there were people that have been going to the fair for years, mm-hmm. real fair junkies. They walked in there and 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 just big grins. They said, I. I, I I know where I am you know I can see the grandstand over there but I don't know where I am mm-hmm. this is all this is all new uh, the only problem is the 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 trees are too small again you got to be patient I'm not so patient with that kind of thing uh, I got asked by the University of Minnesota by their uh, uh, their their tree people what what we're looking for and, and I said a tree that'll grow to uh, 60 feet in two years and, and just, Looking and tapping and very seriously. Well, I don't know if we can do that. So, well, of course, you can't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, we'd love you to come up with something like that where where we could. That part of it, we need to be patient with. We'll get there. We'll get there. So
0: let me ask you this. Let's get down to brass tacks about these neighborhoods. Buildings, what are the elements of the neighborhoods that change between neighborhoods? Is it the building style, the architecture, which I think is a great point about bringing in people who know more than we do, uh, you know, about making good architecture and bringing in the partnerships? I think that's genius. What about um, um, in the signage? What other things change between neighborhoods? That's the thing. It's because we haven't been to the Minnesota State Fair, uh, a lot of us. So is there anything else you can point to?
1: Well, I'd I, you know I think on the surface you'd say it was all a happy accident that over time this the this one building built in 1950 just happens to work really well next to a building that was built in 19. 19- uh 64 next to a log cabin from the 1930s next to a ride that was built in 1915 and i'm just describing one street there some of the folks have been there know exactly where i'm talking about it's and it's a beautiful area uh then you go down a block and there's this uh department of natural resources this huge log cabin built in the 30s during the depression because there were a lot of lumberjacks out of work so you know we have this massive Log cabin that houses all these different things. Uh, I'd like to say it's all a happy accident, but but the way things work out at at the, at the Minnesota State Fair, the way they have, I think there's something else at work here that you just really can't you really can't put your finger on, mm-hmm. but it but it but it's real and it's tangible. And if and if you if you've been there, and there's so many good people here that that that, that really get it, including uh, Joe and Denise Kopansky from 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 our board they, they understand they know exactly what I'm talking about
0: shout out to Joe and Denise they happen to be in the audience right now all right so um, all right so uh, um. I had a tennis instructor one time that called it luck and skill, L-N-S, luck and skill. And it's like you have to have a lot of skill to get lucky sometimes. And so I think there's some skill that you probably don't even know what's happening that got you as lucky as you are with your buildings and so forth. Okay, I want to switch gears for a second and talk about just you and how you spend your day. As a CEO of a a software company, I often... I find that I spend my day a certain way and then I talk to other presidents and CEOs and they spend it a totally, like somebody who's more familiar or more uh, well-versed in finance than I am, they're looking at the books all day. I'm actually out there. I like to talk to the people and so forth. So how do you spend your day? And do you think it's any different than other fair managers or what, 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 tell us, uh, tell us about just a little bit more about how you spend your time.
1: I don't know if it's any... if anything that I do is the same as any other fair manager any of us do anything exactly the same you know how, how we approach our jobs is all a function of uh, a big part and you find this out over time it's it's a function of personality but uh, I think ultimately we do many things the same or you know you wouldn't be at it too long you, you got to have a real sense of responsibility and a, a real sense of ownership uh, that that's the big thing and I, I know I know in in uh, in my case uh, I, I don't think I completely understood that until after, right after uh, my second fair in this job. No, I'd been at the fair for 30 years before then, but uh, but after the conclusion of my second fair as CEO, I, it really, really hit me the responsibility that 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 we all share. That uh, that if there's one individual in this in this huge organization in this institution that's been around forever, if there's one individual that can really screw it up, it that was me, and I and I, I remember it very well. It was September 15th, 1998 humbling isn't it uh, that uh, in, incredibly humbling uh, but then you make that work for yourself and anybody that's and I've, I've been so fortunate I have a lot of very good friends in the in the fair business and, and everybody agrees on the same thing their approach to it might be different but we all agree on the same thing and uh, in our case we have we have an outstanding staff they, they they get it they've been around there's a real nice blend of people there's a lot of different age groups in there uh, but ultimately, they, they really, really get it. So how I spend my day is, you know, other, there's usual desk work that comes up. But beyond that, I, uh, I, I, out, of, out of any day, if I'm there eight hours, I spend at least six talking to people. Mm-hmm. You know, and if it's, uh, if it's an old-timer like, uh, like Jim Sinclair, one of the deputy general managers of the fair, uh, Jim reads ride manuals for fun. He, uh, he, he knows his stuff. He, he's responsible for all of our commercial exhibits and our midway and all that. Uh, or if it's, uh, you know, it's one of our outstanding up-and-comers in media and marketing, uh, we all talk about, about the, the same sorts of things, about the responsibility that we have to the institution, the, res- the responsibility we have to everybody that's visiting the fair mm-hmm. uh, every day they're there. It's, it, it's all on us to make sure that, that they get the best experience they can.
0: Yes, it's always good to remember, as the boss, that it all rolls downhill. I think, and it's like whatever tone you set is gonna be is gonna be down there. So, all right, let's talk about your marketing. You brought up marketing just now. I know that you cannot have a fair like you do without some amazing marketing. So, tell me just a little bit. Do you, th- do, you do anything unique in marketing? Anything that you think works particularly well? And how have you changed your marketing over the last few years?
1: Oh, we've changed a lot. I'll go back more than a few years. <laughs> you know, back to when, when I when I started in this. as the marketing guy was 1979 and at that time there were there were four major newspapers in the Twin Cities and a lot of dailies and weekly newspapers around Minnesota there also uh, uh, five commercial TV stations in the Twin Cities and another uh, if you add them all up around uh, around the state another 30 stations basically it was media relations and purchased advertising at that time it's evolved uh, first slowly and then lately rapidly where right now media is so fragmented, uh, a microcosm of that is what's happened with TV. You know, there there were only broadcast stations, just a handful. That was it. Uh, now I don't know. There are, what? Eight hundred and some stations that. Uh, that I have now on Comcast. Bruce Springsteen did a song about that. I think it, whatever number he, 600 stations and nothing on. Well, I don't agree. There's plenty on. Uh, but but all media has been fragmented that way. Uh, my my kids, they're both in their in their 30s now. Neither of them subscribe to a newspaper. Uh, they're getting their information elsewhere. They're very well informed. But a lot of it's electronic. A lot of it's web based. Uh, a lot of it is social media. And we utilize all of those. You know, for example, last year, uh, last year we had a really good grandstand lineup. You know, thanks to uh, another one of our deputy GMs, uh, Renee Alexander. She's outstanding. Just booked this great lineup, and uh, we we had gross ticket sales of a little over five million for our shows. We'd sold four million dollars worth of tickets uh, without purchasing an ad anywhere because of uh, because of electronic marketing. It's our website, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, and uh, e blasts to uh, to uh, news media. You know the traditional media pick it up as well. Although I don't know if I should use that word anymore. I don't know what traditional media is. You know, right now, I suppose you could say the old stuff. Yeah. But it's changing so much, so quick. And you know, it's, that's what we're doing right here, right mm-hmm. now. You know, it's media on demand. Mm-hmm. It's a show on demand, which is all very cool. But we're, we've been engaged in all of that. That creates all sorts of new opportunity as well. You know, we do Facebook. Uh, we do Facebook posts every day on something. You know, on Tuesdays it'll be a historical entry, it'll be an old photo, some description of something that happened long ago. Uh, and uh, if, if people perceive the, the fair is somewhere that, uh, well, it's kind of tough to get around, well, then we'll do stories, we'll do entries on how, uh, on, on how that's changed. You know, we'll, we'll, do, uh, we'll do hidden gems, uh, really cool exhibits or, or places at the fair that, uh, that uh, maybe a whole lot of people aren't aware of, you know, to help them navigate their way around the fair. Uh, but, but basically it's a, it 's gone from from focused very tightly in a couple areas to just to out there and everywhere uh, at one time the uh, mar- all of our marketing was one full time employee and that was me you know right now we have we have marketing sponsorships media relations uh, web web production we have two people that basically just you know do nothing but web design which you need to be very very fluent in, uh, but we're also getting so much more mileage out of that now than, than, than we ever did. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a real good example, and I know everybody's doing it now, is, mm-hmm. really, is really staying current and doing all the technology will allow us to do.
0: That's great. And I want to take a second and just take a little tangent here about Facebook. Because Facebook, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, but Facebook in January of 2015 is making a pretty giant change. They made a lot of changes last September through the December of 2013. But in January 2016, they are really, the word on the street with all my nerd friends is that they are going to be really, really cutting to zero, not allowing any organic, that means non-paid posts that are promotional in nature to get through to on the newsfeed. And so when you're doing, I love that you gave specific examples of types of posts, and a lot of those didn't sound super promotional, but I think what you'll want to see is what the view, if you're doing organic, meaning just not putting ads in, but doing organic posts, look at how many people you're reaching. And if you're reaching not very many, I would look at the words you're using and make sure they're not too promotional sounding, because you could do something cool like about history or whatever, and they're still not going to let it go through. So advertising on Facebook, I read somewhere that in the holiday season of 2014, people paid 2.58 times more than they paid in the holiday season for Facebook ads in 2013. So I think so in some ways the glory days of, you know, sort of internet being, we all, it was never free, but we, you know, we all perceived it free if we were uh, just spending our time, which I would, you know, of course I'd argue that's not free. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, then um, I think that would be um, uh, something to keep in mind. All right, let me ask you one more question. We're about out of time here, but I have to ask you, One thing that I think a lot of fairs, with all due respect, would be jealous of that you have is TV news and radio programming happening at the fair. And that is like advertising that you could not possibly pay for to have them there on the scenes. And so I'm just curious, how did you get that accomplished?
1: That's been something that's developed over time as well. You know, if you look back in old photos, you see WCCO radio, which was like the giant radio station. Uh, not just in the Twin Cities or even Minnesota, but but you know throughout throughout the region, they, uh, there's an old shot of, of a booth that they had at the fair where they were doing live broadcasts. So the, the fair has always been you know if, if we're doing, if we're doing what, what fairs can do, when you look back to the world's fairs, go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s they were all about the latest and greatest and you got to be there if you want to see not just what's happening now but but you want to look into the future that's what they were doing and and in the, the broadcast media in the twin cities had that same attitude back then there were tv broadcasts and when i was a little kid uh we'd go in the early 60s and watch real live kid programming and the mindset of broadcasters in the twin cities has been for many years that everybody's at the fair we want to be there too it's a great place to meet our viewers and our listeners and the the production that they do at the fair is incredible you know to 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 see an hour-long Uh, news show done from the fair it's not just stand up saying hey live at the fair so-and-so you know standing outside an exhibit and back to you in the studio they don't do that the they bring the studio to the fairgrounds
0: and has that happened since you've been uh, general manager of the fair or while you've been at the fair
1: no they've been doing that all along one of the very first jobs that I had when I was the like the full-time publicity guy was was helping schedule programming for the broadcast outlets at the fair they do have uh, permanent facilities you know all of them do there's uh, five TV stations that have permanent facilities that do live broadcasts uh, every day, and I don't know how many radio stations. Uh, if I gave a specific number, I know I'd screw it up, but it's, it's, it's north of 20 uh, with permanent facilities, and basically they're doing, they're doing fair shows. Uh, can't beat that.
0: I agree I'm going to just take a second here does anybody we actually are in the igloo if you're tuning in you know if you missed the first part we're actually in an igloo right now I'm sure the visual I'm gonna have to post a photo of us in the igloo does anybody have any questions we've got quite a few people around um, I'm gonna leave it to you may get some follow-up questions Jerry this was really interested thank you interesting thank you so much for joining me I'm gonna go ahead and wrap it up I want to tell you thank you so much I know like I said a lot of people aren't gonna get to talk to you in person but they're gonna get to hear from you Via the podcast is new media that we're talking about. Uh, so I want to thank you so much. If you want to learn more about the Minnesota State Fair, just go to www.mnstatefair.org. If you want to know more about Sapphire Events and how we help uh, events and venues and destinations market smarter online, just go to www.sapphireevents.com. And if you liked this podcast and want to hear more, we really appreciate you giving it a review. Some people have been giving us reviews lately, and so I would love for you to give a review as well. And um, the more reviews we get, the more it will be shared with others. So we really appreciate you helping us, you know, continue to market this podcast uh, for us. So anyway, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me again. Any final words from you?
1: No, thanks, Kendra, very much. It's really, really cool to get this opportunity. And, uh I'm um, just so grateful for it. And, uh, and shout out to everybody involved with fairs anywhere. Uh, it, it doesn't matter, big, small, in between. We're, we're all doing, doing very good work and helping pull communities together like nobody else can.
0: I totally agree. That's why I'm in this business, and I would not trade it for anything. All right, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Amplifier Event Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Sapphire Events for smarter online event marketing. If you have an event or venue, did you know that you can get $20 for spending 20 minutes learning more about Sapphire? Check it out at www.sapphireevents.com. We'll see you next time on the Amplifier.